we are really experiencing um, a very clear level of God's providence as the only two times I've taught so far have, um, have really been the exact same topic that Preston has covered in the sermon. I did law, uh, this, the week he did law, today, image of God, as he covered a lot of the image of God, so um, I just have to teach half of the lesson now, I guess, because... Uh, you got you got a good you got a good um, introduction to it. In fact, many things that I'm not going to touch on you've just heard about in the sermon. Um, but let me uh, uh, ask God to be with our class and uh, bless us. So let's pray. Father, thank you uh, for your graciousness to us for a chance to um, dive in again to this topic um, of your Word and seeing in ways in which um, this is. Uh, Consistent throughout the hundred, maybe even thousands of years of of its uh, of writing, to see the consistent message that you have given in all sorts of areas and all are glorifying Christ. I pray that you bless us as we dig in now and, and continue to train us to learn to read your Word in Jesus' name. Amen. So I do hope that you have um, enjoyed and learned from this class. It is intimidating to put together um, because I know that I am not covering everything in this, um, but also uh, just the, the nature of this class. We're not looking at the, these topics as full topics so that we're going to, uh, we're just laying out topically what these are. We're tracing the, the trajectory of these through scripture, always being informed by Christ and the New Testament because Jesus himself tells us that we understand Scripture by him, that all Scripture points to him. And so even as we um, talk about ourselves in this image of God, we are looking at this reflective of um, who he is and, and, uh, and Christ's nature. Um, so let's, um, let's dive in to this with some table discussion questions. Um, I've, I've thought of a, a, a few of them, um, but maybe for time's sake, we just do the first and the third. Uh, you know, first, first is how do you describe yourself when meeting someone new? Um, that has to be like a profile that you put on Facebook, or or just when you greet somebody in church or on the street. What's the thing that you say about yourself? And then, um, you know, what makes you different from other living creatures? Maybe we'll we'll side. And put that on the side and then ask, you know, here's a really revealing question. What makes you feel less human? Um, it could be something in society. It could be something personal. I mean, you know, you may not have know the person in your table too well, so use the level of depth you feel comfortable on that question. <laughs> but um, work through question one and three and take a, a couple minutes to do that. Yeah. <laughs> 
just like say that's the yourself a little bit more by that. Anything else? All right. How about, how about um, I mean, it's just, it's interesting to think about. I, I'm often caught, wow, why do I keep defining myself this way? And what, maybe what's some of the downsides? How does that come across to other people if I define myself in a certain way? I've noticed that uh, it's very easy to define myself by saying where I'm from here, but lots of other places in New Haven, it's, oh, really? Why, why would you say you're from there? You, it seems like an us against them almost immediately when you, when you make that statement. Same thing about work. Um, you can also define uh, in a way that makes the other person feel very uncomfortable. Okay, maybe I don't take as much pride in what I do, or maybe I just don't like that as a, as a group. Yeah? One of the things that came up is that it depends on the circumstances where you're meeting people. You might not, you might greet them differently or talk to them differently. Yes. I have aliases too. Yes. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> right, yeah. Different circumstances will, will dictate. Um, how about that third question? Anybody brave enough? The questions like that make you feel less human. <laughs> Jesse. At an insurance company uh, as an actuary, and they used to always refer to us as resources. It's not good. And I used uh, to say, I, like, it, it made it seem like I was a book or a computer or something, or <laughs> right. just a monetary object. 
Yes. Clearly, I'm an asset, right? <laughs> <laughs> that would have been better. <laughs> Anything else? I just don't think in that term. Now, maybe I'm leading a sheltered life, but sort of I never go there yeah. in my head, I guess. Well, it, there might that may be just a bad way to ask it, but there are other questions. There are other scenarios where it can become a feeling. I feel shame here. Like I feel I mean, shame or threatened of identity. Um, yeah, just demeans some of those things. Yeah. Our table was talking about the lack of eye contact or not giving eye contact yeah. or receiving it. Right, right, right. That even our animals recognize the lack of our eye contact and try to get our attention. Interesting. Interesting. That's that. That opens a can of worms. Our relation to the animals. I think in that politicized place, I know sometimes I I do feel like, oh my gosh, why do people need to ask me what ethnicity I am or Mm. what even what kind of Hispanic I am? Like where, what kind of what kind of Spanish? That is like. Excellent. Am I just a big, you know, check on your demographics formula? Yeah. Yeah, that's a way that some. I mean, we need to be aware that that is a way that there are lots of people that feel that question. It may be a question for us. Why don't we? You know, for those of you who don't feel that question. Like, am I a white Hispanic? Yeah. Like, all these characters, yeah. like, uh, sorry. Yeah, the categories themselves are. You are Spanish? The categories themselves know. can make us feel that way. Anything else? Oh, that, yeah. Uh, I think, like, for me, it's been failure to meet certain standards and whatever I'm pursuing. Right. Or maybe a certain, like, physical appearance based on, like, what society says is acceptable or how well I sing, if that's what I pursue, or that's, like, you know, like, yeah. whatever we've studied or how we work, like, failing to meet a certain standard, there's that insidious, like, I'm not even human being because I don't meet mm. the standards. That's interesting, yeah. So, and that standard could be something that society imposes upon us, or it could be something that we've created in ourselves that we're not living up to. Um, that that lack of dignity and worth that's there. That, that's interesting to me, because you know, the fact that you failed proves that you're human. Um, so, it's, that's why I struggle with this, because right. I feel extremely human. Yeah. <laughs> and that may, that, that may import a lot of ideas on what you think ideals should be or how they could be fulfilled. Um, so it's just interesting, you know, to, to work with, uh, you know, th- this idea of where we rank and what makes us human as, as opposed to other things, whether machine or animal, uh, all through the movies. Um, Doug knows I like movies like this and <laughs> watched a few. Um, but that, that question seems like it's all over the place. What are ways that we can be dehumanized through this? Um, I want to just begin and dive into this on some definitions. And I always like defining something about what it's not uh, before I find what it is, only because it helps draw the lines. Where, where is it? And oftentimes, a common misperception is that, that the image of God means that it's something in us, um, that it can be lumped in with some other, other categories of it. And maybe you have heard this. What distinguishes you from other creatures? Um, I, I gave the answer here. But what are, what are some other things that people have said defines you over against other creatures? Well, commonly, language. The ability of rational reflection um, or to reason at a high level. Deliberative action, some sort of agency where I know and I plan to do something. 
you know, what else? Use of tools, some, th some things like that that say, okay, humans are different. Well, none of these natural capacities makes us special uh, other than being a more complex biological form. And I want to argue that if we continue to just define what it means to be human as these things, then we're missing out on really what uh, life, what, what the being in the image of God is all about. Um, because what if you lack some of those traits? Is someone who lacks the ability to use reason, are they no longer human? If they aren't uh, blessed with the ability to have language, or there's some dysfunction there, are they not human anymore? Or, you know, again, getting into the sci-fi world, when something does ascend to these sort of criteria, do they now deserve or recognize the animals? Wow, dolphins are really smart, or, or chimpanzees can do all this uh, you know, communication. Do they now deserve human rights and dignity? The lines become very blurry if this is our definition of what humanity is in the image of God. Definitions that focus on something in us tend to picture humans as fundamentally autonomous and independent. Um, you know, this is philosophy 101 through, I don't know, philosophy 400. But a lot of philosophy, when you're determining who you are, what self is, picture it as autonomous, independent. You sit back in quiet reflection and determine who you are and what kind of qualities make up you to be human. But that's not the biblical understanding of what the image of God is. The image of God is not something in us that's semi-divine. It's something between us and God that constitutes a covenantal relationship. Fundamental to understanding the image of God is this idea of a relationship. It can't be understood independent or isolated. I can't be just an image of God detached from all of creation and what God's made. The very word image implies dependency. You can't be an image of nothing. You can't be an image unto yourself. By using that word image, it says that there's some sort of dependence on something else. And, and Genesis 1 doesn't picture... So I think here, here's a really good um, reflection that I, I've learned in my research on thinking about Genesis 1. So oftentimes we see it as God creating humans and then doing what? Then entering a covenant with humans. But I think the better reading is that uh, in Genesis 1, God creates humans, and in the act of creating, in our very existence, we are entering into a covenant relationship with God. There's no time ever in humans' existence that we don't have a relationship with God. And think about that. Think about that, how it, how it um, sort of all of a sudden deflates this idea that there could be people in the world that have no idea who, who God is, that in some way that, that we're just... You know, independent and blind, and maybe God didn't reach out and ex express Himself to us. No, it says even from our very being, our creation, God has been in relationship with us, and that helps us to understand sin. Uh, sin is breaking that relationship, denying it, and as Romans one will say, suppressing that. God says, "Let us make man in our image." Genesis one twenty six, and it's really fundamental to how he understands creation. He makes us, and in the process of making us, we're in his image. Not, let's make man, and then let's put our image into him. Does that make sense? 
Um, so this implies, as we've said, a relationship with God. Fundamental to who you are, you're in relationship with God. Doesn't matter if you, you know, don't think about Him or you you suppress that. But it also means that we're in relationship with others. God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. We're, we're created. This definition of image of God as male and female together means that part of what it means to be the image of God is to have a relationship not just on the vertical end, but on the horizontal end. Even before we get to marriage, we see this dependence on other humans. Then very quickly, um, we are introduced to this idea of marriage. Now, marriage isn't fundamental to what it means to be human. What's a good, what's a good argument from Scripture that, that proves that, that, that um, marriage isn't fundamental to what it means to be human? What's that? Yeah, Jesus, right? We would, we would deny, we would have the, the heresy of the early church to say that Jesus is not human because Jesus was never married. No, Jesus fully human and fully divine, never married. Um, so it's not intrinsic to being human to be married, but there is something about marriage that helps us understand. And what we see in that very early description, not only of uh, the image of God, male and female, he created them. But also here in Genesis 2, when we talk about this sort of marriage song that, that um, Adam sings, this is bone of my bone. Male and female, there's diversity. Bone of my bone, there's unity. And that sweet relationship defines what humanity is over against other creatures and creation. There is something that unites us together, but also, especially in marriage, we see diversity. I'm not to marry myself. I'm not to marry, uh, it's very, very, very um, you know, just sort of uh, selfish thing to be able to look at the things that are exactly like me and to be drawn to, to my own reflection, narcissistic. Um, Lintz puts it this way, although different, they belong to each other. Male and female are created beings who offer something the other does not have. They find satisfaction in the intimacy of their union, which is richer by virtue of their differences. We might say the idea of person from the beginning of scripture is a being involved in the relationship of unity and diversity. The words in instituting marriage in Genesis 2 function not merely to cement social contract between consenting parties, but rather as a deeply theological claim on their reflected identity. Marriage is a significant recognition of this unity and diversity across the canon. I think it's a beautiful understanding of it. Um, it uh, often comes up in marriage counseling, <laughs> as you see differences of things that uh, put you at war with each other or separate you, but actually um, they are the wonderful thing that uh, makes your marriage much stronger and makes you as a person much stronger. This can be found in other ways in non-married uh, relationships to a certain degree. There's ways in which we challenge each other. Being part of a, of a body of Christ, just even in his family. I mean, guys, many times I've heard that you would not choose each other for brothers and sisters. <laughs> um, and that's a beautiful thing, that you're lumped in with people socioeconomically, educationally, culturally, all sorts of ways that just are different. There's a lot that unites us in Christ. But that diversity also, because of the way uh, many images of what the Christian body looks like, we should celebrate that. Um, so there's not, there's not independence 
And then we also have a relationship with creation. Management image of God is given responsibilities not just towards other humans. We've talked about relationship to God. We've talked about relationship to others, uh, other humans. And now it's also a relationship to all creation. As we're given um, responsibilities to tend and to care. I think this pushes back against some things. I know that it's not popular to push back against uh, our own self-definitions. And so you've got to do it both ways, right? To be an introvert, I've heard many people say, well, look, I'm an introvert. I don't like people. I'm just, I, I'm not going to detach. Or, I'm an extrovert. I love people. Where can both of these things distort our created purpose? How about an introvert? Where does that distort our created purpose? That's not to say we can have, have to be at war with ourselves and who God made us to be. There's a lot that's glorious and wonderful about that. I can't discount that. But, when it becomes an excuse, I'm not really going to go to this thing, I hate people. Heard it. <laughs> Sometimes called it. <laughs> when we say that, we're starting to push it back, back to this idea that, well, yes, that may be a disposition in me, but my Christian, my human duty, as an image of God, not just Christian, human duty, is to be relaxed. I can't hermitize myself, hermetically seal myself off into, into some... Um, detachment from others. Same thing with extra. How, so that's maybe e- easier to figure out. How about extrovert? Extrovert can't say, oh good, I'm, I'm free and clear. I'm relating to all sorts of people. What's their danger? Really relate to no one. Yeah, how, how do they really relate to no one? Right. I mean, it, it can now it can be done that way, or it can be done in such a super uber way that you actually are not an image of God. You're just becoming an image of the other person. You could worship and serve the, the creature, not uh, not the creator, in these relationships. They can become um, things that you um, put at a higher place. So that that is the initial thing that we've got to define image of God. Not as independent, autonomous. That's not who we are. We're from Scripture from early on talks about our multiple relationships. Uh, let's stay in Genesis. Stay in Genesis one. Uh, Supposed to move all through the Bible. We're still in Genesis one. Uh, we'll get there. But you know, thinking about the days of creation as humans being part of this. Um, and you know, you know the way that I structured this. I put day one, two, and three, and then I put. Um, uh, day four, five, and six sort of indented under them. And this is really to highlight the fact that I, I think literally if we approach how it's written and not and just pause for a second the questions of historicity but just really focus on the literary structure and the point that is being made um, we can see that there's a pattern. God saying let there be light, let there be dark, day one and then on day four he he um, institutes things that are said to rule day and night, and that's the sun and the moon. The same pattern shows up in day two and five, that, that water and sky are created, these realms, if you will, and then rulers of those realms are things that fill. In fact, here it doesn't call them rulers, they're called those who can multiply and uh, uh, have, have um, extend, you know, extend their, um, their uh, fulfilling. And then three, there's land, and then man is there at the end, um, having dominion. And then having dominion sort of going back up to day two over the fish, birds, livestock, etc. Um, there's that, that dominion. Illustrating it in this chart, 
which I um, got from Michael Horton, um, I think really, really helpfully shows this drama. And just notice the, the progression, the movement that happens here from one to six. There's a flow to it that says that they're, they're going, it's going somewhere. And as these, um, as these realms are, the, are created and the ruler comes in there to fulfill those things, uh, there is a sense of, of progression. Now, again, I think that's a lot, really far how we understand the Garden of Eden. For many of us, we think that it was just this sort of frozen time, right? How many of you have thought about the Garden of Eden as just this sort of ecstatic perfection? That it was this wonderful garden, and it's time you're there, and there's no worries and no problems until sin comes in. Well, I think that Scripture uh, very intentionally uh, depicts the garden as something that is still waiting for more to come. That there's a forward uh, expectation and hope. And that's even in this pattern of creation that sort of even in the first week, as it were, you're longing for that Sabbath. You know, there's a, a, a sense of impermanence with day and night that, that just sort of says, wait, is there going to be a time when it's all light? And Revelation, there is no darkness. You know, Th- There is a sense in which you're just sort of lurching forward to that Sabbath. And not only just being compelled there, but having responsibility. And that sets up this idea that even in the garden, there is a probation. There is a time in which... Your faithfulness, you're looking forward to a time when that's rewarded. And that your responsibility, not just to yourself, but to all of creation, comes forward and brings it into honor to, to the Lord. Because those first six days really lead up to the seventh day, where God is seated. And who is the ruler of all these days? At the end, it's all of the realms, is the Lord, the ruler of all creation. And so that um, all creation in the garden point forward to something more. Um, following Genesis 1, imagery man positioned as the ruler or the vice king. So in this position on day 6, man is like a vice king. And then um, his position of responsibility, Adam is called to lead all of creation, because that's his dominion responsibility, into God's everlasting shalom, signaled by the tree of life. Man, this vice king, processes, uh, sorry, processes into the Sabbath presence of God, bringing all creation as tribute to be laid at the feet of God. And so this seventh day pictures God ultimately reigning as king over all. So whatever else you want to talk about historically with these, I think that's the, the literary structure you know, doesn't just hint, but just strongly wants us to lead to this idea of a glorified God over all of creation. And that, see the dignity of the image of God there? Dignity of image of God really puts us uh, a little lower than angels. Well, it's, that's Psalm 8, yeah. That, this idea of high position in all creation. Any questions on that before I... Um, just a, a brief illustration of how this hierarchy works. You know, you got God, you got humanity, you got beast. What happens at the sin? You know, serpent, man and woman, God. The hierarchy gets flipped. Yeah. Some might even see the hierarchy within man and woman being flipped on that, but let's, that's for a whole other session. I'm not going to talk about that now. Um, but you see this continually in imagery throughout the prophets, where beast is being, you know, in many graphic images, those things that we serve. 
Uh, what are some beasts? Most clearly, Revelation, Golden Calf, you know, lots of other things that you can, from prophetic literature all throughout Scripture, shows that inversion of created order. So, the image of God reflects God. Um, what if I, you know, again, uh, what if I just randomly ask, what evidence do we have that God exists? Some of you may go out and say, okay, so there's this proof, the ontological proof, the teleological proof, the whatever, I don't know. It's so long since I studied those things. But all the, the little ev- the evidence for the existence of God, I mean, some might go into a subjective, well, I just feel that he exists. What evidence do we have? Other people are going to say, there is no evidence of God. It's clearly just something by faith. Image of God says there is evidence of God right here. Look around the table. It's blaring at you. It is it is speaking forth to you that God exists and, and about the information about God that's at a pretty high level. We are constantly getting bombarded with images of God, and you're looking at them. It doesn't matter um, the diversity that we see around us. Um, there is this. So how does it? How do we image God? How do we reflect Him? Um, Genesis five one through three, um, interesting, says that part of what we do in reflecting God is just even in our appearance, in our in our being. This is a, a book of the generations. This is Genesis five, book of the generations of Adam. When He created man, He made him in the likeness of God. Likeness of God, right there. Adam is in the likeness of God. Male and female had created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam lived 130 years, he fathered his son in his own likeness, after his image, and named him Seth. Having a son, Seth, myself, who sort of looks like me, because this is the point, right? I mean, this is the idea that there's something that looks like me that's out there now. He may not have any of the qualities like I do. He doesn't drool half as much as I do. But the idea idea is there's something there, and and there's something in us that testifies to God's existence and and reflection, just in in our very being. And and that's how Genesis sets it up that way. Um, There are other ways in we reflect God, even in our creation. Psalm 94 He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? There's a lot about it, just our physical makeup, that can communicate things about God. And that scripture uh, testifies. Westminster Confession says, God made all creatures. He created them male and female with reasonable and mortal souls, enduing them with knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness after his image. All of those things are part of what God is and can be communicated to his creatures, to us. Um, so the image reflects God. Um, the creator, uh, God, designed us as working creatures in his likeness. So we should do things things well, like he does things well. So part of what it means to be the image of God is to work. Why? Because God worked. And God continues to work, and he cares about what he does. And so we should care about what he, we do. We exercise dominion and rule. God grants us this re- responsibility to be vice regents, to have dominion over creation. We should be like him. We should, in our instincts, want to bring order out of chaos. 
And that doesn't mean you're OCD over things, but it means that there's a particular orderliness that God intended for creation, and that we should be part of um, the things that, that move away from chaos and destruction. God gives us judicial discernment. Genesis 3, behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Being like God in that way. Um, we're also like God in our morality, although you know, we lose that. Um, that likeness in morality as we fall into sin. Man is like God in terms of knowing good and evil, which has to do with the royal function of judicial discernment and decision rendering. Um, we are like God in all these ways. We have been designed like a reflective mirror. Best illustration I could come up with. Um, a major Google search to find that mirror. And the reason why it was hard was because the mirror has to be angled. <laughs> and if you're really getting it, it should be a, like a 45 degree angle where we're imaging God to creation. Our responsibility to creation isn't to image ourselves, isn't to put ourselves up to all creation and say, be like us, be like me. It's to reflect God to all of creation and that responsibility. Um, this is a very popular practice that we uh, not only image God, it's what we've been saying, that there's qualities in us, but we also represent God. Those are two different concepts. Image him and re- represent him common practice for an ancient ruler to place a statue in a common land. So imagine if you're in imagine if you were walk down Washington DC uh, and you all of a sudden see statues of give me a world ruler. Huh? Putin. Putin. Okay. You see statues of Putin all over the place. Or if you, you go down Washington DC, you see, you know, statues of, of Justin Trudeau or whoever, you know. All of a sudden, you're like, whoa, what's happening here? In the Roman world, that was very clear. That's a very uh, um, obvious sign to everybody. Someone else is in charge here. Now, we may be Philippians, but um, we got Caesars all over, pictures of Caesar, images of Caesar, and these statues all over us. Well, in many ways, I got, I don't know how many people are here, 60 people? I got 60 images telling me God rules this creation staring right at me. Hey, better not you know, wander from my, my dominion because I'm here. You should know it. And the creation is filled in that way of having dominion and rule. That God rules. Not us. The, the images of God. Um, also represented by, um, by Stan. Mark 12. You know, so there's ways in which the imprint, God's imprint is on us so that we can reflect it. And, and likewise, Caesar put his imprint on coins so that whenever you see money get changing hands, you're seeing that. Uh, you know, really interesting as this, how would this inform this uh, bring me a Daenerys and, and Jesus is saying as he looks at it, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they say Caesar's. And Jesus says, render under Caesar's things that are Caesar's and render under God things that are God's. He's not just saying pay your taxes. Whose image do you have on you? God. So give that to God. Who cares about this stuff, this little stuff that has somebody else's name on it? God has his name on you. So you give your life to God. That supersedes everything. All right. Um, Not only do we have the royal vocation, but we also have a priestly vocation. Creation is pictured as a temple. Uh, Imaging God is presence. Um, in Genesis 2.15, we're told as humans to work and keep creation. That's language that's used at the temple. We're to guard his presence. Yes, it is true. God is present everywhere. He's omnipresent. Uh, but he is also a God who uniquely 
is present in his image. He's uniquely present in where he has redemptive relationships. So that's why we can say there's something different about you gathering together as the church than you just in creation as a whole, because it's tied to his word. Humans were always supposed to be mediators of this sacred presence, this sacred space. All right, so um, running out of time, but let's get a little into sin here. Um, we're no longer to exercise proper dominion now. We no longer exercise proper dominion, but tyranny. Um, we have this, um, the fact that the image of God is still valuable, though. It's still present. Uh, Genesis 9, James 3, both use the word image of God to talk about fallen creatures. So we did not lose the image of God. Yes, it becomes distorted, but we still have the image of God in us. Um, it doesn't eradicate the covenantal relationship, but now there's covenant curses to that ultimate um, beginning relationship. Humanity is divided between Cain's proud city and the city represented by Seth. Not my Seth. Um, well, yeah. So. Uh, but listen to sin's distortion here. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For the women exchanged natural relations to the to those that are contrary to, the, to nature. Men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committed shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what we ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, malice, uh, malicious. Uh, they are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though, uh, though they know God's righteous decree, uh, those who, are, who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but they approve of, approval of those who practice them. Now the thing is, many people use this list and say, that, that's what's wrong with society. That's what's the problem with humanity. They're doing all these things. That's, that's not reading this passage right. No, that's not. Those particular sins aren't making society wicked. They are a sign that humanity, human society, has departed from the image. And we're reflecting those sins, not that those sins uh, are causing it. Those sins are a result. See what happened to the mirror is it's no longer reflecting in an angled way. It is now upright and reflecting creation to itself. So that Paul can say, rather than imaging God, we're imaging creatures. That we, we turn and try to be like the creation itself. And then we're all lost. We talk about moral clarity. There's no moral clarity when we've detached ourselves from God and our responsibility to creation and just reflect back to it. The word for image is used in a positive way at the beginning of Genesis, but after Genesis 1-11, through 11, almost always it's used negative. And that is the same word for idol. We see that warning in the second commandment. Um, we become like we, what we worship, and these ideas of these images around us that we worship, um, they become symbols. Um, we start reflecting things like sex and wealth, um, not only are they things that we worship and long after, they start changing our appearance. In sex, it's very obvious. We try to keep and hold on to our sexual 
attractiveness for years and years and years through surgery, through exercise, and diet, through all sorts of makeup and clothing and all these things in order to worship that. Now, it's not to say you shouldn't dress up, but, but it's the idea of worshiping that thing and then it actually changing how we look. It's shaping our image. We're reflecting creation back to itself. Same can be said by, by wealth. You have these status symbols to, to, um, to reflect and to, to signal the rest of creation that we have a status. We're making that our image. Well, I need to get to this. This is, um, you know, the conclusion of it really is Christ. Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. That, that, that idea means that here, Jesus enters into humanity and is exactly the, the pattern that we were formed in ourselves. Jesus was created, we were, or Jesus was um, the, the, the first, you know, we're created in his image, he comes in and is created in our image in some sense. There's a, a way in which we, um, we can see the original and the ultimate image of God in Christ. Um, John says, uh, from this question, Lord, show us the Father. Have you been with me so long? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Um, this idea that, that Jesus himself, um, we're seeing God. He is the true image. Whereas Hebrews says, the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of his nature, upholding the universe with the word of his power. So Christ comes in here as the true image and appears before humanity. And now we as as creatures, as, uh, uh, and, but then, now those in Christ are being remade. And how does Scripture talk about it? Clothing ourselves with Christ. Putting on Christ is a very common New Testament um, way to, to talk about this. I'm going to have to skip these passages. This will all be online. But um, the sense of, of putting on Christ and, and um, not, not just having him... Um, legally be our standard, but also conforming ourselves to his image. Second Corinthians, uh, that same idea of being conformed to Christ. Um, and we with all unveiled and we all with unveiled faces beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this uh, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Um, so this idea of being able to reflect Christ as we um, are engrafted into him and grow into him. Um, for those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that we might, uh, he might be the firstborn among um, many brethren. Paul claims that uh, to share in being conf- uh, conformed to the image of the son is to share in the death and resurrection pattern instituted and constituted by Christ. How do we get into this image? Well, sorry, bad news. We get into this image by dying. We die to ourselves. And then we find our life in Christ and are born again into Him. God has ordained suffering as a path to dignity. Enduring hardship is the means by which we receive glory. That's all throughout Scripture. It's in Romans 8. This idea of dying to this old, corrupted mirror that reflects creation back to itself so that now we can be born again into this image of the likeness of Christ and now reflecting him to the world, fulfilling our ultimate destiny. And now finally the future, looking forward. This Adam-Christ parallel, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, who's that? Adam. 
we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Who's that? Christ. That's the parallel that, that he puts out there. In Adam, humans inherit death as the just sentence. But in resurrected Christ, people will bear his image as the man of heaven and will inherit the imperishable existence. We now put on that, that Christness that gives us our hope that, um, and our future. All right, you are an image of God in some senses. You have purpose and worth and dignity because you're not just an image of anything, you're an image of God. Uh, and so this modern quest for identity that sends us into all sorts of questions of intellect and gender and race and class, as, of, as if those things are going to define us and try to find our definition, uh, they become empty. We are images of God. Every person has dignity and value. Um, you know, I think these two quotes, I'd love to have time to read them, but we're out of time. This idea is that, as, as uh, Pratt says in his lecture, I mean, honestly, if you went up to a person, another human being, and in all seriousness, you're all going to laugh, in all seriousness, go to them and say, Your Majesty. Your Majesty. You'd be hitting exactly what Genesis was about. This idea that there's worth and dignity, that encountering another human is encountering an image of the divine. And that deserves um, dignity and respect. Lewis says, um, you know, encountering the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, would be strongly tempted to worship. But on the other parallel side, you are an image of God. You are not God. However much dignity and worth comes from being an image of God, you are just an image. You are a creator. And our vocation is to lead all of creation and ourselves to rule and, uh, to, to the rule and worship of the one true God. Um, and that means to change our relationship with everything. Uh, and so that, that brings us to the end. I know the kids are coming in now, but you have questions. I know it's a ton and very fast. Uh, yeah, questions? All right. Um, enjoy the meal together, and um, and I do encourage you to um, celebrate the, the image of God that, that we have amongst us here as we fellowship with each other. Not just images um, generally, but ones who have been conforming to the image of Christ. Let's pray. Father, uh, thank you for this meal, for this day of worship, for a time to be together as your people. Bless us and help us to continue to see this uh, amazing um, worth and dignity that you have given us and this uh, tied to it, this calling of who we should be. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.